So this is Mike Grandinetti once again on behalf of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. Very excited today to spend time with David Rosenberg, who is, amongst many other things, the co-founder and CEO of AeroFarms. I first had the privilege of chatting with David during a recent exec ed course that I teach at Rutgers called Leading Disruptive Innovation. And I brought David in to have a fireside chat, and um, the, the net outcome was the executive students in the class were really blown away. Uh, I then wound up sharing uh, a couple of videos of AeroFarms with my master's students in a uh, course about how frontier technologies are being employed in business, and they were wildly excited. So I thought this would be a great vehicle to have the opportunity to share uh, David's vision, AeroFarms' mission, in a much broader context. So David, welcome. I know how much you travel and how crazy things can be. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. So David, let's start off with some real basics. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit about your background? You've been in the social impact space for a while. Uh, you've you've founded some other impact-oriented ventures. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you've been up to until this point in your career where you're now so deeply engaged in AeroFarms? Happy to. Before AeroFarms, I founded and led a nanotech company that provided a solution to the building and construction space as it relates to waterproofing and corrosion inhibition. Uh, we essentially develop ways to waterproof buildings using less materials, less processes to uh, putting the waterproofing inside the concrete as opposed to a membrane around the concrete. And in doing so, realized that concrete accompanies a lot of landfill and Oh, and how important it is. I got really engaged with a philosophy that became a product certification called Cradle to Cradle. Okay. Cradle to Cradle's gift to the world, if you will, was the concept of materials and understanding of materials being incorporated into design. So right. it's not that a material is bad, but materials in some applications are stupid. Right. So how to have the right the right materials in the right applications. And this philosophy became a product certification. My last company became the first company to achieve this cradle to cradle product certification. And I joined the board of advisors for cradle to cradle, a nonprofit, and it's now gifted theirs to the cradle to cradle product certification uh, system standard. And uh, it became equally important for me of how to build a company that has a positive impact on society as well as a positive impact on the environment. Yeah. as well as a positive impact to shareholders. Only then the positive profitability element can really scale in a meaningful way. So it thinking about like all it. those three, three influences into building a business and trying to figure out where to be impactful through the waterproofing business, I learned that a lot of water goes to agriculture, about 70% in fact, and a lot of water contamination comes from agriculture. And that... Uh, coupled with my cradle-to-cradle experience, coupled with some ahas around technology innovation and LEDs, led me to AeroFarms. But it started off in innovating in materials and construction. And before that, I, I worked in an Israeli incubator. That and, and Israel has amazing innovation and learned a lot of cultural aspects that I've tried to bring to my last two companies. 
and before that influenced with a friend of mine who disrupted the finance world wow. so i had a stint on wall street and my friend who disrupted the finance world and, and really building the first ecn uh, electronic communication network if you think of electronic trading that kind of influenced me on the power of disruptive technology and and going up and changing the status quo and wow. invigorated me to be an entrepreneur and be both think bold uh, about extreme disruption and that confluence of seeing the Israeli way of moving fast. They just, yeah. Israeli companies move so fast, innovate so fast, not afraid to make mistakes and fail fast. Just a lot of yeah. experiments and sort of a scrappy way to continue to move the dial and, and right. challenge each other. So it's that inspired me to be an entrepreneur and then to use paths with the environment and, and had a influence society all led to where I am today. That's great. So David, a lot to unpack there. So first a comment, um, obviously recently the business roundtable, you know, under the leadership of Jamie Dimon has sort of re recalibrated what a business stands for. Now, whether action is taken or whether this is lip service will remain to be seen. But of course the B lab phenomena of, you know, companies that practice what they preach and are completely transparent, right? It's a very positive trend in the world. And, and clearly you've been a pioneer in that. Now let's talk about uh, one of the, right. And, and having also worked for a Tel Aviv based startup, I, I couldn't only concur with how extraordinarily innovative not just you know Israeli startups are, but the country itself, right? It's a, it's a the entire country is one big startup incubator, and there's so much to be learned from Israel. But let's go back to one of those insights you had from your prior company around waterproofing, because I know that you are uh, you know in addition to an incredibly busy day job as CEO of Aero Farms, you've got a number of other roles, including uh, two at the World Economic Forum. One of which is you're part of this water security. Uh, agenda group. Can you talk a little bit about your work at the WF, both there, WEF, both there, and in the circular economy uh, task force that you co-chair? So I, I'm, I was a member of the Global Agenda Council on Water Security, and yeah. there the mission is: what are the strategies and to ensure that the world doesn't run out of water, and uh, whether it's public-private partnerships or other, and uh, it's. I stepped down. It's hard to influence change there. It's a it's a really meaningful objective and topic, and uh, it wasn't. Um, I wanted to do something bigger than just write articles and write position papers. So yeah. I, I formed the Circular Economy Task Force. I co-founded and co-chair the Circular Economy Task Force for. It's called the Young Global Leaders of the World Economic Forum. But our task force is part of the main agenda of the Davos Annual Meeting of the World Economic Forum. And what we did is we realized the conversation, this goes back to 2011, the conversation around the environment at the World Economic Forum was talking about sustainability. And a lot of companies were looking at sustainability as an influencer, but not a key component to their business plan. And we didn't want another conversation around doing less bad, but more of a conversation around doing good and how yeah. to incorporate the environmental considerations into one's business plan at the yeah. essence of a business plan. So we formed my co-founder, Peter Lacey, who's the global head of strategy and environment for Accenture. We co-founded the task force 
to make sure that the dialogue was centered around business. And that's what that's the essence of the, the missing piece that we saw. And that's we started great. talking about what are business plans, whether it's the idea of a shared economy, uh, whether it's the idea of a product as a service, there are certain business models that really embrace a new way of thinking, a new paradigm of thinking about materials, the environment, waste, and uh, circularity. Yeah, and we and started course, first celebrating different companies that are leading in this circular economy, economy way and then uh, uh, sharing their stories. And we put together a, an award piece. It's called The Circulars. Your audience could go to thecirculars.org to really celebrate companies, individuals, even like organizations, municipalities that are leading in a circular economy way. Very cool. So, David, you know, it's it's hard to believe that it's been over 15 years since Al Gore's seminal documentary, ultimately Academy Award winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, was published to the world at the Sundance Film Festival. What are some of the inconvenient truths that you believe our listeners need to understand today about agriculture, about food security, about water security, that you ultimately AeroFarms has been designed to at least address in part? Just building off Al Gore. So Al Gore recognized, recognizes, recognized in the inconvenient truth that food and how we like source our food is a big element uh, of the issues we need to face. He, he actually convened, and I was honored to be part of it, a uh, roundtable of CEOs in the food and ag space. And he brought together innovators that he think are going to help provide the solutions to some of these macro tensions. But to answer your question, the macro tensions are the obvious, which is population growth. How are we going to feed a world going to 10 billion? Yeah. It's urbanization coupled with some of these items like a depletion of our arable land. So the world has lost 30% of its arable land, arable land means farmland, 30% of its farmland in the last 40 years. So you look at trends like that coupled with population growth, where does our food come from? Yeah. And, and then you look at from the food standpoint, 70% of our what, and this gets back to like my inspiration for building arrow farms, 70% of our water, use goes to agriculture, freshwater use. 70% of our water contamination comes from agriculture. So you just look at those two facts. If you yeah. want to solve water, solve agriculture. So that got me into agriculture, that fact. And the next piece had to do with LEDs and the lowering cost structure of light emitting diodes. But back to the, the macro tensions of the world. So you have you have that plus with the variety. So, I mean, we can go as deep as you want to go, but the varietals that people are using, there's less diversity going on. There's a higher growing middle class. With that growing middle class, there's more consumption of meat. The resources used for a meat-based diet versus a plant-based diet are several fold higher. And uh, with the growing middle class, which is a good thing, all of a sudden people with more disposable income are having more expensive diets, more expensive meat-based diets. So it's, it's not just getting calories in it's getting proteins and it's not just getting proteins hopefully it's getting plant-based proteins and it's getting a more of a plant-based diet so the issues go on and on and and some of the solutions are 
technological. Some of them are behavioral, like a plant-based diet versus a meat-based diet. It takes massive amounts of supporting collaboration, whether it's public-private partnership collaboration, whether it's the investing dollars with the entrepreneurs. But there's there's a lot of hurdles, and fortunately, there's a lot of opportunities. Whether it's digitization, whether it's cloud computing, whether it's AI, machine vision, it's um, there's a whole bunch of enablers that are going to accelerate innovation. It's a it's a fun time to innovate. Another challenge, if you look at ag as a as an industry or food as an industry. It ain't going anywhere. I mean, right. people are going to need to eat. So the opportunities are there. And there's been, frankly, underinvestment in the space for decades. And there are tremendous inefficiencies. So as an entrepreneur, the, the I would argue that like the best way to start a company is look for a problem to solve and come yep. up with a solution after you find, identify the problem. So there are yep. lots of problems within right. the space in a space so david let me let me just uh, in in the interest of of uh, just taking a break we're going to have a quick pause uh for our sponsor and when we come back what we're going to talk about is what those opportunities are specifically around vertical farming right which is where you are now taking a stand with aero farms and uh and then getting into you know some of the use of frontier technologies that have helped you to create uh, what you've what you've been able to achieve so far and uh, talk about the vision for the future. So we'll be back uh, after a word from our sponsors. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the Leading Disruptive Innovation Program, visit li.rutgers.edu. Okay, so David, I'm going to pick it back up. I just needed to do that for just... So, sure. so, so David, of course, you know, at, at its highest level, Aero Farms is a vertical farm. And, you know, everything about vertical farming appears to address a lot of the issues that you've described. Now, you know, as I've done my research since having met you, and you tell me if you agree with this, there seem to be two prevailing schools of thought, right? There's vertical farming, and then there's regenerative agriculture. And whether it be your firm, Aero Farms, or Plenty, or Square Roots out of Bedford-Syvesant, Right. The you know, and, and, and we're seeing more of this in Europe as well. Um, the field is certainly getting legitimized. There's a lot of venture capital that has been committed to it. And we'll talk about that. But there's also the idea of regenerative agriculture and Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, um, also based in the New York area, seems to be one of the thought leaders. Can you draw distinctions and talk about what the trade offs are bef- between those two approaches? Well, first I'll share that it's not an either or dynamic. So in fact, it is a both dynamic. I I would Mm -hmm. argue sometimes it's appropriate to grow plants in the field in some parts of the world. Sometimes it's appropriate in greenhouses in some parts of the world. Some parts, sometimes it's appropriate in vertical farms in some parts of the world where one grows in the field. I would hope one uses 
regenerative agriculture techniques. So the idea of crop turns and ways of growing, that's a smart way of growing to preserve the land. At, uh, at arrow farms and from a vertical farming standpoint, when we decide to build a farm, we, we ask ourselves questions of like, is it hard to source product 365 days a year? So uh, oftentimes plants grow, you, people hear of seasonal crops. So most crops are seasonal and they just grow in certain areas. That doesn't mean demand is seasonal. So sometimes people want product all the time. And sometimes as a consequence, we ship product from very different parts of the world to meet that demand. So one of the basic questions and one of the basic value propositions of arrow farms is enabling local food production at scale. Yeah. So we ask again, is product available 365 days a year? Is there a consistent quality? Is right. If we could grow more and more people are aware of chemicals that are on our food that they don't want in their body. So can, is there a benefit to grow pesticide free? More often than not, the answers are always the answer is yes. So we could, grow a plant with zero pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and, and that's a good place to be. Yeah. And, and David, let me just pick up on one thing you said. So, you know, something that I read that I think is very much in line with what I just heard you say, right? Seasonality in the food product, but, but you know, year-long demand, but also this need to move then foods from areas where maybe something is growing to where there's demand, but there's no local source. And one of the phrases that really caught my attention is that today – Food is produced primarily to optimize the ability to ship it cross-country as opposed to for flavor, for nutrition, for other, you know, benefits that one would expect to be getting out of their produce or out of their freshly grown food. So clearly this is something that vertical farming is intended to address. Correct. So if you think of a berries or a tomato is a good example, so, or a banana, so we might harvest some of those some fruits or vegetables not at peak time before they mature knowing that there's maturity once once a harvest happens that plant starts dying and maturing so it's not harvested at peak flavor peak nutrition and then it's transported and it gives the plant fruit or vegetable more shelf life and when one's producing locally that's less of an issue so you really could have at aero farms we're able to harvest during peak maturity or whenever the ideal maturity is so optimize flavor nutrition and get it to the store our goal and we typically deliver on this goal is to get product in the store in 24 hours wow in, in leafy greens the comparison is on average five days yes. so typically it takes five days to harvest and if one's talking about a 12-day shelf life and yeah. five of those are in transport and 12 becomes seven and that's yeah. under ideal conditions where the cold chain is maintained, which right. frankly isn't always the case. So 12 days could become seven, then quickly less. There's tremendous spoilage in the supply chain. So in the category of leafy green salads, 60% of leafy greens spoil before it gets eaten. And that's what comes off the farm. So if a farmer harvests and packages and ships off 100 pounds, only um, 40 of those actually get eaten. So there's yeah. tremendous waste in our supply chain. And if you think of how much 
depletion of soil and our natural resources go into that that 40 pounds, that 100 pounds that becomes 40, it's just a shit. So there's tremendous, yeah. back to my point, tremendous inefficiencies along the supply chain. Okay. So, David, vertical farming seems to have uh, hit its stride. Um, based on what I've read, you know, venture capitalists have committed over a billion dollars to vertical farming uh, entities like yours over the last two years, right? A uh, company known as Plenty on the West Coast has raised $200 million in capital from Jeff Bezos, from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, from SoftBank and its Vision Fund, fairly well-known fund. Um, another firm that, you know, is also doing this, of course, is Kimball Musk's firm, Kimball, the younger brother of Elon Musk from Square Roots, based in Bedford-Stuyvesant. You're obviously a, another major player with a 70,000 square foot facility in Newark, and you're going global. So it would appear to me that the the financial uh, community that invests in the future believes that vertical farming's time has come, that you've overcome maybe some of the economic obstacles uh, that might have plagued the industry in the past. So can you talk about you know what has triggered this level of investment recently? Well, first up. I, I mean, I'm biased here. I, I think Aero Farms is the leader in the space. We've, yeah. Uh, to my knowledge, I'm not, I don't know if anyone has proven the unit economics at scale to the point that Aero Farms has. So we are, as an industry, though, it's different to build a small farm versus a big farm and get the unit economics where they need yes. to be. So the key is scale, and the scale is where one could get the their economies of scale in this industry like other industries so how does one get the scale to compete with the field farmers or greenhouse farmers and and that's where i think aero farms um, really has taken a leadership position the from an investing standpoint people appreciate the macro trends and how vertical farming is a trend not a fad and the economic indicators are going in our favor and there's uh, we have raised the aero farms raised uh, close to 200 million and a lot of the complexities are are not obvious but very real so it's it does warrant big investments i, I don't think this is an industry where one could really go small it's really yeah it's like a go big or go home sort of space we have 160 people in the company and and how we solve a problem needs to be an integrated approach so make sure our 20 engineers our 20 plant scientists our computer programmers and and our operations team our construction team all come together to to solve problems sometimes we one can solve a problem operationally biologically, environmentally, um, genetically. There are different ways to solve a problem. How do you solve it without over-design or under-design? Yeah. And making sure that the capital costs, the operating costs are are in line with one's business model. So it's, it's hard and the problems solved again small are different than the problems solved as one scales up the farm. Right. So, and David, so this is one of the things that I'd, I'd really love to have us unpack now for the, the last part of our discussion. So here we are, right? You think about farming, right? Think about old school farming, uh, you know, uh, I think Spike Lee's uh, 
you know, uh, film company's name out of Brooklyn is 40 acres and a, and a mule, right? So when you think about old school farming and what you are doing in the incredible number of moving parts and the incredible complexity. Um, and what I love about you, David, is you're a philosophy major, right? And yet, you know, you are hiring data scientists and plant scientists and, and people that are very, very much around engineering and operations. Uh, but you're also hiring people from the community of Newark who are um, recently incarcerated and uh, sort of returned to society. So it's a remarkably diverse set of people that you have working with you in, in pursuit of this vision. Can you maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, just sort of take them through any, any single produce and, and how you go from, you know, the, the beginning of thinking about producing it to when you, you know, you actually have it leaving aero farms at some level of scale, you know, in that, uh, you know, in that cycle. So a day in the life of a plant, meaning? A day in the life yeah. of the plant and what's required behind that to, to make it work. Okay. So we we really break apart the process of a plant to its different components and ask, what a, what does a plant want? And then separately, we try and figure out how to deliver what a plant wants to yeah. the plant when it wants it, how it wants it. So how do we put a seed on growth media, whether often we use it, we don't use soil, we use a cloth growth media. Sometimes we use, we've tried about 150 different types of growth media. And we've tried about over 50 different ways of delivering nutrients to roots. So here we're really unpacking all the different components of how to deliver light to a, to a leaf, to the plant canopy. There's just better ways of doing things. And it's kind of cool where the, the world's invested and performed R&D on how to grow a plant in a field. But once you take away the field and replace it with pumps, lights, fans, this mechanical component, there's a way to influence the plant in a whole nother ways. Just as an example is a plant there's, may not need 10 hours of daylight. So tonight there'll probably be I mean, 10 hours of darkness. There'll probably be 10 hours of nighttime. Who's to say a plant needs that? Maybe a, what happens if a plant gets one hour? What happens if it gets one minute? What happens if it gets five hours? Here, we could play with all of these environmental stressors in, in ways that one can't play with it in the field. So there's a tremendous amount of research and development that goes on to how to optimize plant growth. And it's not just growth for yield, but it's for taste, texture, nutrition, color, all of the all of these different features so it's how do you seed then how do you germinate which is get a plant to open up we germinate for example in about 12 to 48 hours what typically takes eight to ten days so everything we do how do you save a minute an hour a day a week uh, overall we grow a plant now in 14 days that otherwise takes about 30 days and and our crop cycles we have about 27 crop cycles in our facility, what otherwise is about three cross cycles. And that's in, in our productivity versus New Jersey is about 390 times, depending on the plant, could be as high as 390 times more than a field farmer in New Jersey. And that's because of the crop cycles coupled with the, this, the height of the plant. We'll have 12 levels of plant growing versus one plane on the field 
coupled with the controls and tr- controlling the seasonality and growing 365 days a year as opposed to 90 days or 120 days. So uh, that, that's how we get to that math. But yeah, the, and I mean, um, so if we go back to your original comments, right? Being you know back in Israel, you know the the aggressive nature of moving quickly, the ability to experiment and fail fast. And you said you've tried 150 different ways, you know, to, to do one specific type of thing. So, you know, this is iteration on steroids. And I can imagine the data sets must be massive as you look to optimize all of these different variables to try to find the perfect arugula, the perfect basil, the perfect, you know, butter lettuce. Right. So that back to you talked about my background. So it's it's not in plant science or engineering, but my contribution to the team is help, helping like set the the vision, put together the print the guiding principles by the vision, the, the purpose, the strategy, and then the organizational structure and the resources. And the organizational structure is key in how people come together. And from the principal standpoint, making sure that here we, we want people with thick skin that could engage in conversations and be challenged and challenge others. We, as a relatively young company in, that's moving so fast, we have to make so many decisions with incomplete information. We owe it to ourselves to challenge each other and be challenged, to yeah. try and have the best decision, not coming into the meeting, but going out of the meeting. And that's, that's one great. of the key components to moving fast, I think, at any tech company. Yep. There's no nonsense. Just get right to the essence of it. And and that's that's a very Israeli cultural thing as well that I've seen, right? Just, you know, there's there's no reason to dance around an issue. Let's get right to the issue. Let's challenge one another to be our absolute best, right? And it's done to advance the business. All right. So, David, once again, fascinating discussion. Let's take a, a, a minute here to... Uh, hear from our sponsors, and we'll pick this up and have the opportunity to hear you talk a little bit more about your vision for the future of Aero Farms, and then ultimately ask you for your call to action for our listeners today. Okay, this is the part where we talk about you. Yes, you. Midway through each show, we take a break from informing listeners about all the amazing things going on in the world of business and technology to personally deliver your message to our innovation-driven, industry-leading listeners. If you'd like to be a part of the show and become a sponsor of the segment and reach out to Mike and Nikiso at this is cool at disruptive innovation podcast.com or this is deep at disruptive innovation.info. <laughs> reach out to us and we'll get you on the show. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. So, you know, you guys have made a lot of progress, right? And, and let me just mention a few things and I'll have you comment on them. So, um, you know, you've got a 70,000 square foot space in Newark. You've, uh, you've hired recently, if I remember correctly from our discussions at Rutgers, former VP of supply chain of Danone USA, former executive at Cargill. Um, you've won remarkable accolades from some of the top chefs in the country for the flavor, the texture of your produce, including David Chang from Omofuku and the executive chef at 11 Madison Park, which is one of the great restaurants in America year after year. So I've got to believe, and clearly you're, you're just getting started, but there's got to be some satisfaction, hopefully, that the team gets to celebrate when you achieve some of these milestones as you begin to prove out your vision to the rest of the world. We do. We 
we try and remember to take pause and celebrate. Sometimes you're working so hard and it's hard to take a step back and realize we've accomplished so much. Uh, so we do to try and take those moments. We just had a cookout two days ago to bringing the company together, celebrating that in July we had our best month ever of hitting yields and quality. Sometimes one hits quality and not yield. Sometimes yields and not quality. We were 10% over our long-term business plan and yields. Yields correlate closely to when cost of goods sold and in quality and yields both. We, we had our, our best month ever. Congratulations. Thanks. And, and these are meaningful milestones to enable financing to come in to invest in the next farm and the next farm after that. There's um, a lot, a lot that we still have in front of us, but um, you know, we're proud of our accomplishments and most proud of our people. We have wonderful people. We, we like to say, let's hire problem solvers, not people to solve a problem. So people with tremendous intellectual curiosity and problem solving abilities. That's great. Dave, just a couple of more questions before we wrap up. So, you know, you're, you've become quite the globetrotter. The last few times I've spoken to you, you've been in Italy, you've been in China. Um, so clearly uh, this is something with global ambition. Can you talk about what the future holds in store and, uh, you know, what, what the plans are for taking this leading vertical farming business off, you know, uh, into countries far and wide beyond our shores? The problem's we want to solve are not unique to the United States. And in fact, in some parts of the world, the business model is stronger and some parts of the world it's weaker. So we, we look to in the spirit of finding our beachhead and moving out, where do the unit economics make it strong? So for example, one of our cost of goods sold is energy. So where's energy uh, low? Where do you use renewable energy? Ideally, Another big input is price, where where's the price could be high in some markets, some markets are, are lower. Today, for example, in the U.S., we're positioned as in the same category as organic. Not every part of the world would pay a premium for organic. In the U.S., it's about a 20% premium. So we, we definitely look to where the, the business model works, and, and that's a major contributor of where we go next. And then we also want to partner with like, these farms cost a lot of money and we want to partner with people that can help us put invest in a farm. And we, it's important that we operate it and, and make sure it's successful, but other people could contribute to that financial development of the farm. So that's and a, more of a joint venture type of arrangement. Is that what you're referring to where, where you have uh, you share some stake in ownership and, um, you know, some level of consensus around, you know, obviously benefiting from all of your learning, but some level of consensus into, you know, how you're going to grow local produce in a different country. Yeah, there are lots of ways to structure a deal. And yeah. what's important is how, how are we at Aerofarms capital efficient? There's a lot of continual innovation and like to use our resources of how do we continue to put more money into R&D? How do we grow more varieties, grow them better, grow them using lower capex, lower op operating costs? Okay. So um, clearly you are someone in possession of a grand vision. So where do you hope that you take Aerofarms ultimately? I realize, you know, none of us have a crystal ball and 
things are evolving so quickly in, in, you know, from a regulatory point of view, from an environmental point of view, from a technology point of view. But that being said, right, I've got to believe that you've got a, a vision of what impact you'd like to have. Can you share that with us? Well, at its essence, we want to have a bigger and bigger impact on the world on how we source and grow our, our plants. And if you unpack that, we want to take an understanding of what makes a plant grow to new heights. And then with that understanding, how to be better farmers. We want to be constant better and better farmers, how to grow those plants, reducing CapEx, OpEx, always improving quality, and make sure we're growing the right products. So not all problems need to be solved. And like I said earlier, it's not appropriate for us to grow all plants and all geographies in vertical farms. So what are the right problems to solve and make sure we're focused on those? That's great. So David, this, you know, don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I, let me ask you this question if I can. Um, you are right in the vortex of, you know, so many globally challenging issues for our planet. You're involved in vertical farming, and obviously you're doing this because of, you know, issues around water security and food security. You're a part of the World Economic Forum's Circular Economy Task Force. You're, you know, you're working with the G20 on food sustainability. Um, and you've got this Cradle the Cradle uh, initiative that you've fathered and have, you know, uh, let take root in the world. What calls to action would you like to leave with our listeners about what we can do individually as our government hopefully gets out of its own way at some point? What can we do individually to have the most impact right now? And I just want to correct one thing. Uh, Bill McDonough, Michael Brownguard, they fathered Cradle to Cradle. I, I, I was just a happy, uh, I did a small part to help move it along and, and help okay. you do so. But I appreciate to that. answer your question, I hope uh, people ask questions. No, like it, it's right now we're unfortunately at a point in our political history. Globally, I'd say there's a lack of political leadership. Yes. And there's uh, a lot of like our pieces aren't moving as faster and as effectively as we want to enact change. And, and one of the unfortunate consequences that is that the externalities about um, how things are manufactured are not in the calculus of of commerce. So for example, pollution, CO2. If a factory spews pollution, there's no negative economic consequence today. So if one company is a good actor and doesn't spew pollution or and another company is a bad actor, the good actors might be at a competitive disadvantage because their cost structure is higher to be a good actor. So the political solutions, the public-private partnerships to solve this are not there as much as they need to be, and it's not the solutions aren't coming as fast as they can be. So in absence of that, where a customer can ask questions, in the case of food, how is the food sourced? How is it not only what is in the product, but how is it produced? How is it grown? And put pressure on the retailers to ask those questions. Look at palm oil. So right now there's tremendous deforestation in Brazil to grow palm oil. And those products end up in food we eat every day. 
if yeah. the customer demands that the retailers, the Walmarts of the world, not buy products that were sourced from farmland where there was tremendous deforestation, it has an impact. So that's just one example. So if if we could at Aerofarms grow a plant using a lot less water, and customers say, hey, how much water did you use? Or pesticides, did you use pesticides on that? And by the way, organic does not mean no pesticides. In fact, most organic product has pesticides. It's organic pesticides. But it's but so but 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 still, whether you're asking questions about organic pesticides or no pesticides, the more people ask questions, the more people put pressure on retailers to ask these questions, then in absence of a political solution, we could start to formulate a commercial solution. That's great. David, I know we've run out of time. Uh, you know, I want to just one last time iterate. Uh, you're an inspiration to me. You're an inspiration to my students. And I have no doubt that you'll be an inspiration to our listeners. I wish you every success as you continue to execute on your vision. I think that um, you know what, what you've done today is just reinforced for me how important the work is that you're doing. And I hope to be able to support you in any way I can. Thank you, David, for taking time to share your thoughts and your experiences with us today. Okay. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you for listening to the Disruption Innovation Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on any of your podcast platforms and give us five stars so we can keep doing this and bringing you the content that you love to hear. Thank you.